God bless you as you give and thank you for it. We're starting a new series today. I'm so excited about this. We did. We had such fun with the questions. Uh, and last week, I'm just still stunned at the questions that came in uh, and how the kids were so quiet when they were with us, you know. And just, I'm really, really excited about what happened last week. And today, we're starting a new series uh, called Prophet Reboot. And this is, the, the idea of this is that the message of the so-called prophets in the Bible, uh, especially the section that we call the minor prophets today, this has such, such relevance for us in the modern age and in the, the, the 21st century. And we can choose, you know, to listen to their message. You see the cell phone on the screen there. You can choose to listen to what the prophets say to us, or we can choose to ignore it. Uh, but their voices are still speaking today through the scripture uh, if we would listen to the things that they would say. When we talk about the minor prophets, this is a um, a term that we use today. It's not a term that you'll see in the Bible, uh, but these are the, the prophets with the weird names, you know, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. When's the last time you read Obadiah in the Bible? Yeah, what's an Obadiah? You're probably saying Jonah, and we're going to talk about Jonah today. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, he's called. Uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We're not going to do every single one of them, but those are the so-called minor prophets, all right? And this was part of a section in back in the day in the Bible that the Jews read, uh, a section that we call in English today the writings. So remember, um, we talked about this last week. Jesus talked about the major divisions of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets and the writings. In Hebrew, we would say the law is the Torah, if you've ever heard that term. Uh, and the, the writings, um, uh, yeah, the writings we would call the Nevi'im, we would call today, or back then in Hebrew. And uh, the Psalms uh, and Proverbs and those things we would call the Ketuvim. And you put that, that, those three words together and you get Tanakh. And this is what the Jews call the Hebrew Old Testament. So in the section uh, called the prophets, you have a group of 12 of them who I just mentioned, and we call these people the minor prophets. Does anyone know why we call them minor? Yes, Joes. Because there are major ones. And then the question is, why do we call the major ones major and the minor ones minor? I mean, do the minor ones have less to say? Are they less important? Like, why do you think we call them minor? Shorter time frame? It's because their, their writings tend to be smaller. So like the book we're going to look at today, Jonah, little, little tiny book, four chapters, really, really small. Uh, and most of the minor prophets is small. You know, Isaiah's got 66 chapters, long, long book. You know, I, uh, Jeremiah, long, long book. These are long. Uh, but the minor prophets are smaller. And this is why we call them minor. It's not because they're less important. It's not because they have, uh, uh, they're, they're somehow, you know, well, we forget about them. We just look at Isaiah and Jeremiah and the like. No, it's because the body of work is smaller. Okay, so if you want to read um, prophetic literature, the minor prophets are a good place to start because the books are small and you can even read the whole book in one shot. You know, you can read the book of Jonah in about 15 minutes max. It's a really, really short book. In fact, the Jewish people read the whole book 
on uh, the holiest day of their year, Yom Kippur. Uh, I'll explain why they do that in a moment. Now, this whole idea of prophets, we have to get this straight today because we have all kinds of bizarre uh, ideas about what a prophet is. It seems to me that today people love the concept of prophecy and people love to call themselves prophets whenever convenient, you know, and whenever there's a prophet in town, we all want to go and hear the prophet preach. You know, in different churches, you can say, well, we've got a visitor from prophet so-and-so today. Whoa, let's go and see the prophet. Back in the time of the Old Testament, the job, the office of the prophet was a very reluctant one. People did not like doing this job, and they didn't like doing it because oftentimes prophets were very much disliked by the people because they had things to say that ruffled people's feathers. Um, when we use the term prophet, I'm going to give you two, two ways that prophets do their job. Uh, one is forthtelling, and the other is foretelling. Easy way to remember it. We like the foretelling part uh, because we picture today the prophet is sort of the Christian version of the crystal ball reader. So, you know, we go and see the prophet, prophet, tell me my future, and the prophet says, you know, in the name of, of Jesus, you will marry a nice man, you will marry a nice woman, you'll be healthy, wealthy, wise, and prosperous, thus saith the Lord. And we say, oh, good, that's good prophecy, I like that prophecy, I like you. Um, this is not really the way that it happened in the Bible. When they foretold things, that was a lot more rare than when they foretold things. And when they foretold things, they basically were reminding the people, this is what God has said to you. This is what the law says. This is what the Torah says. And you all are not following what it says. And because you are not following what it says, I'm telling you that trouble is coming. So you better fix your lives and you better repent because God is going to judge you if you don't follow the law. And this was the forthtelling ministry of the prophets, and this is mostly what you see. They would slip into the foretelling mode and predict things, but usually the predictions that they made were, here is the consequence that is coming because of your disobedience. This is what God is going to do. So major, major piece of the prophetic literature, uh, God is, is, says through the, through the prophets, I am going to send the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are going to take Jerusalem and they're going to take Judah because of your sin, Israel. And the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to take the north. And uh, I'll talk about that when we get to Jonah. But this was, the, this was when it got prophetic in the sense of foretelling. So be, be aware that this is a reluctant office in the Old Testament. This was not the preferred job that people had. Most of the prophets were of the opinion, God, why are you asking me to do this? I'm incapable of doing this. My, 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 I'm unclean to do this. And God would use them anyway. Most of the prophets suffered. Many of them died violent deaths. Many of them were persecuted because they had news that wasn't always, or most of the time, wasn't pleasant to the ear. And that's a very different recipe 
than what we see today uh, in some circles where, you know, there's a new prophet in town and they're there to tell you things that are just so wonderful, great news, great news, but they don't have much to say about sin and consequence. So the, the prophets of the Old Testament, foretelling, foretelling, and even in the New Testament, you do see a little bit of prophetic work there. It's along the same general idea. So I'm going to start with Jonah because Jonah is like the easiest of the minor prophets to read. The story, it's a narrative. It's a, it's a story about this man's life. It's not a bunch of sayings or a bunch of oracles that he is making that we have to try and interpret. It's a story of his life. A, a very brief uh, book, but loaded with powerful lessons for us today. Uh, Jonah, and we know him most famously for what? Any of you know the story of Jonah? Jonah and the whale. So this is the man who we're told in Scripture spent three days and three nights in a, in a giant fish or a whale. And this is, of course, what we think of as soon as we think of Jonah. And, uh, and of course, in the modern age, everybody says, oh, yeah, right, as if we're supposed to believe that this guy lived inside of this whale for three days and three nights. This is nonsense. This is a fable. This is rubbish. And this is about as far as we go when we learn the story of Jonah. Interestingly enough, Jesus believed in the story of Jonah, and he mentions the story. Uh, we'll get to that as the, at, at the end. But the story of Jonah, if you want to turn there, if you can find it um, in your Old Testament, I've got it right in front of me, uh, just spread open, just right there. It's two pages long uh, in my Bible. And you have Jonah uh, presented to us right at the beginning as this prophet. Uh, we know him only from one other piece of scripture, which is in 2 Kings verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 25, where he confirms uh, um, a prophecy of an enlargement of, this, of a section of Israel under Jeroboam II. Uh, I believe it was the king there. You can look it up yourself. And he's the son of Amittai, and he's the prophet from Gath Hefer, which is in the Holy Land there. And that's all we know of him until we see him uh, in the pages of the minor prophets in the book of Jonah. And right away, right at the beginning, we see the crisis that Jonah uh, has when God calls him very, very clearly in chapter 1. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh, Nineveh, and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, verse 3, ran far away. Uh, from the Lord and headed to Tarshish, and he went down to Joppa, where he found a, a ship bound for that port, and he paid a, a, the fare, and he went aboard, and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. We'll pause for a second. Uh, you have to know a, a little bit of the background, uh, why Jonah would do this, and what God was really saying. Um, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Assyria, not too long after this story of Jonah, Assyria would take the, the north uh, part of Israel. Israel had been divided in a civil war. You have 10 tribes to the north, you have two to the south. And the Assyrians would come and they would conquer, they would invade and conquer uh, Israel to the north in the year 722 
uh, B.C. This is a little bit later than the story that we read in the book of Jonah. So it hasn't happened yet. But the Ninevites and the Assyrian army are a force to be reckoned with. They have a reputation. They are certainly considered as the enemies of Israel. They are a threat to Israel. They're a threat to everybody uh, at that time. And they were a very, very powerful military force back in that time. Uh, and Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrians. Um, if you study them and how they, how they uh, operated, how their military operated, they were extremely cruel and extremely uh, violent. Um, it was the uh, Assyrian policy to, to deport uh, the peoples that they had conquered to other lands within their empire. Uh, their, their point was to destroy whatever nation's sense of nationalism, to break their pride, to break any hope of rebellion, to replace them with strangers from far away. They were great warriors, um, as was the case with most of the nations at that time. They were looters. Uh, they would build their state by robbing other nations. They were very ferocious, in particular the Assyrians. Uh, the very name, we're told, was uh, synonymous with cruelty and with atrocity. They did things to people that I really can't mention. They were so violent and so cruel. Uh, you can look it up yourself, but I feel a little awkward <laughs> mentioning what they actually did to their victims when they went and conquered them. And uh, Very, very brutal and without mercy, the Assyrians. This is what they were known for. So Jonah, a Jew is told to go to Nineveh and preach against the city because the sin and the wickedness of the city has gone up before God. One would think that Jonah would say, oh yeah, I'm up for that. Uh, because this is, a, this is a terrible place and God, God's going to judge them and I really, I'm, I'm up for that job. Uh, but what Jonah does is he runs away, and he runs away as far as possible uh, from this, this call of God. Um, and you'll see in a minute a map. I don't know if I did the order of the slides right. Can you go back one slide? Back another? Oh, okay, you, did you see this already? Oh, okay, so that's how we know Jonah. Go to the, go to the map. There we go. So this is what this is to give you an idea of what Jonah is doing. You see the letter A there. That's where the story begins. And Jonah is from that place called Gath Hefer, which is in the Holy Land. It's near Jerusalem. And God's going to call him to go to Nineveh, which is letter B there on the far right-hand side. Okay, and uh, Jonah, in response to this call of God, he's going to go to Joppa, which is a port city there, right where you see the letter A. And he's going to try and get on that boat, and he's going to go as far away as possible to the, this, back in that time, in his understanding, that would be like the end of the world. So he wants to get as far away as possible. He's not stopping in Rome and in the area of Italy. He's going right to the end there to this place called Tarshish. So he's saying, God, I'm not doing it at all. I'm going as far away as possible from this. I'm going in the total other direction so far away, God, that not even you can find me. 
So this is essentially what he's doing. We're not sure why when we look in the, in the immediate as to why he would do this. What's he feeling? What's he thinking? We're not told yet. But to get an idea of the distances, if you want to shift to the next slide. So he's got to go like 550 miles to Nineveh. And if I'm not mistaken, Nineveh is, is modern-day Iraq, okay, around that area. But instead, he's going to travel 2,500 miles, uh, you know, five times the distance to Tarshish. So he's basically saying, no way, God, am I going to do this. I'm not up for it. I'm headed in the total, total opposite direction. I don't know if you've ever experienced this idea of running from God. Uh, and God has told you to do something, and you're in opposition uh, to, to the will of God, and you decide to make a run for it, you know, maybe physically, you know, you're traveling somewhere, or maybe just spiritually on the inside, you're saying, no way, God, am I going to do it, and you're running from God, all right? Well, this is exactly uh, what Jonah did and uh, you see that something begins to happen immediately when he gets aboard this, this ship uh, that's headed for Tarshish from Joppa. Verse 4 of chapter 1, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Hmm. And all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. So you don't have only Jews there. Probably most of them are Jewish at all. They've got all different kinds of gods there. They're calling out to their gods, gods of weather perhaps, uh, to save them from this storm. And they throw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went down to him and said, how can you sleep? What's wrong with you? This ship is being torn apart. We're throwing stuff into the sea, and you're down in here sleeping? And the captain goes to him, get up, get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Jonah is asleep in the, in the lower deck of the boat. Amazing. How is it that the man is able to sleep in this time of great, great turmoil? Not only is he running from God, he manages to take quite a snooze in this boat, as if he perhaps is on a, a luxury cruise. Like, what is he doing? Even the captain of the ship is shocked that Jonah is sleeping. Get up and call on your God. Sometimes, folks, we... we um, we look for, when we're making decisions, we look for the peace of God. I don't know if you ever heard that. We say, well, when I feel the peace of God, then I know that I'm doing God's will. One could argue that Jonah was experiencing a very peaceful sleep at this moment. Um, and he could have said, well, you know, I just feel very, very comfortable right now, and I'm going to take a snooze. Uh, regardless of what's going on around me, uh, he's in this deep sleep. It's the peace of God that we talk about uh, from Philippians that passes all understanding. This doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to feel comfortable when you're making a decision in God's will. Uh, oftentimes, 
when we decide to do what God says, it can be very uncomfortable. Yet there is a peace that transcends that where you know, listen, God is in control. I know that I'm in his will. I know that I'm doing what he wants me to do. Uncomfortable as it may be, I have a peace that he is in control of the situation. Okay, but there's a false peace that can come as well. So don't always gauge it as, well, if I have peace, then I know it's God's will. I mean, God's will usually is clearly revealed in his word. And you'll usually be able to say, well, there's a principle in the scripture here that's very clear. I need to follow this principle and I know that I'm in God's will. But I've heard people say, well, you know, I just feel peace and therefore I know I'm in God's will. And yet what they're doing is so opposed to the will of God as revealed in his word that it's clear that there's something else going on here. Well, that's what's happening with Jonah. This is, uh, this is a peace, perhaps, but it's not a peace that's coming from God. It's coming from himself and even the captain of the ship. A, a non-Jewish person who believes in a different God has to wake up the prophet of God and, and get him to call upon his God. Remarkable. So we follow the story, and we, we, we keep going here. And then the sailors, because they're apparently very superstitious, they're saying, there's something about this storm. There's, there's a source from this storm that has to do with somebody's life. Uh, the fate is at work here, and we need to cast lots to see who the culprit is on this ship, who is responsible for whosoever God is causing this storm. And so they say to each other, let's cast lots and find out who's the culprit, who's responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots and the lot falls to guess who? The Hebrew prophet Jonah, the one who was sleeping in the boat. And though they, so they say to him in verse, uh, verse 8, I think it is, tell us who is responsible for all this trouble. What do you do? Who are you? What do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people? Give us your background because the lot has fallen to you, sir. Tell us who you are. And so he says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea, well, the sea is churning up before them, who made the sea and the land, and they're terrified when he says that. And they say, what have you done? Because clearly your God is mad. And it says in parentheses there, they knew that he was running away from God because he had already told them so. So presumably Jonah slips that into the conversation. The sea gets rougher and rougher, and they say to him, well, what? What do we do to make the sea calm down? How do we get your God or your gods to calm the sea because you're the source of this trouble? And Jonah says in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. And I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men resist this. They do not want to throw this man overboard, and presumably he dies. Instead, they do their best to, to row back to land. We're not sure where they are. They're probably somewhere uh, just leaving Joppa, probably not too, too far down the 2,500-mile uh, journey, but we're not sure. They try to row back to land, and they could not. The sea grows even worse, even worse, and so they cry to Jehovah. They cry out to Jonah's God. 
Lord, please do not let us die. Uh, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. They're calling out to, to Jehovah, to the God of the Hebrew people, to Jonah's God. Uh, for you, O Lord, have done as you please. This is your doing. You created this storm. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. They're repenting because they see the action of this God who they don't even know. Amazing. But verse 17, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Lesson for us. These prayers of these sailors included repentance. They saw the power of God. They made vows to the Lord. They feared the Lord. Uh, their response, they make sacrifices to the Lord. Their response indicates repentance, and they throw this man overboard. That picture is from a, a stage production that uh, my family and I saw on Wednesday afternoon. We were in the state of Pennsylvania, and in the Amish country there, they have a very unique theater. It seats about 2,000 people. Uh, that does these dazzling productions of nothing but Bible stories. And, of course, they were doing the story of Jonah. And I thought, this is perfect. This is perfect timing. So we went and saw the show, and this is when they throw him overboard, you know, and it's this huge ship that they build on this stage, dazzling, dazzling show. And you see uh, in the Scripture there these prayers, remarkable prayers of these people who don't even know Yahweh, and yet they're even repenting. So Jonah ends up inside the, the belly of this fish. And you read in chapter 2 his prayer. His prayer is, is a, a nice prayer. It's quite a powerful prayer. But if you look at the prayer of Jonah from inside this fish, there's no repentance in his prayer. He's not sorry that he ran from God's will. So here's, here's a little sampling of his prayer. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Uh, from the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me, and waves and breakers swept over me. And, and, uh, and I said, I've been banished from your sight, uh, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters engulfed me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around me to the roots of the mountains. Uh, uh, I sank down, the earth beneath me uh, barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit. Powerful prayer. No repentance, though. Oh, Lord, my God, does he say, I'm sorry I ran from your will. I was wrong. No. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you and my prayer rose to you. And then he says in the conclusion of his prayer, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, and he's thinking of the Ninevites there probably, but I with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Um, uh, salvation comes from the Lord. You know, do, but do you see any repentance? Do you see him addressing the fact that he went and got on this boat and ran from God? Nope. 
one could argue that those sailors were more repentant than the Hebrew prophet Jonah. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. End of chapter 2. Then we see in chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. So Jonah obeyed this time the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Again, we're not sure from where, perhaps somewhere nearby Joppa, but again, we're not sure. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. I'm at the beginning of chapter 3. And on the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, look at this prophecy, the only piece of prophecy in the whole book, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Oh, I bet it gave Jonah great pleasure to declare this message of doom on this wicked city. And you see what happens to the people of Nineveh, who is the, they're the capital of this brutal, brutal military force, a force known for no mercy on its opponents. The Ninevites, in verse 9 of chapter 3, believed God. Huh? The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth when the news reached the king of Nineveh, and he hears your city is going to be overturned. There's this Hebrew prophet in town. You have to understand the Ninevites, very superstitious people, believed in gods of weather and the like. Some say that in the recent history leading up to this time, there were some calamities that they faced. And so perhaps that made them more quick to repent when they hear of this message of doom. Regardless, the news reaches the king and he, he, uh, he rose from his throne and he takes off his royal robes and he covers himself in sackcloth and he sits down in the dust and he issues this decree to his whole town the city of 120,000 people and he says I don't want any man or any animal to taste anything to 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 drink anything but everyone needs to get in sackcloth and cover themselves and call upon this god and let them give up their evil ways this is an ungodly merciless people and they are the ones who are repenting let everyone call upon his God. Let them give up their wicked ways and their violence. Who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Amazing prayers prayed by people who don't even know the Hebrew God the way that Jonah does. Loaded with repentance. And yet we don't see Jonah. In a state of repentance, we see these other people, this mercy. They, they, they treated people without mercy, and yet they're calling for the mercy of God. It's an amazing uh, illustration. And when God sees what they did, what does God do? When he sees that they turn from their evil ways, the end of chapter 3, he had compassion and did not, and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. So the prophecy that Jonah gave 
40 days and the city will be overturned is itself overturned. And we see that uh, uh, Jonah, he's certainly obedient to prophesy, but he does not love these Ninevites the way that God loves them. He dislikes them, and he probably wants them to die. He probably wants this prophecy to happen because we see in chapter 4 when Jonah, uh, but Jonah was greatly displeased. This angers Jonah that God spares this city of 120,000 people. Jonah was greatly displeased at the beginning of chapter 4, and Jonah became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Listen, he's praying this prayer. And he says, oh, Lord, watch this. Is this not what I said when I was still at home? When you called me, this is, this is why I was so quick, God, to go to Tarshish, 2,500 miles in the other direction. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You see, I knew that. That's written in your word. I know that from the Torah. You are a gracious and compassionate God. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in love. Uh, You are a God who relents in sending calamity. Um, Now, O Lord, take away my life, uh, for it is better for me to die than to live. So what what he's saying is, I knew that you would spare these people. Because this is your character, this is your nature, and there's no way I want these people spared. I want these people to perish. This is why I went in obedience to you. I don't love them, but I want them to perish. That's why I said 40 days in the city would be overturned. And that's why I'm angry now, God, because you changed changed your mind. You love these people. I do not love these people. And he's so angry. He's saying, just take my life. Uh, It's better for me to die than it is for me to live. He is angry without justification at all. And God is showing him his hatred for these people. And he's, he's, he's going to show him in an even more direct way as if he's so obtuse and so dense to his own hardness of heart. And this is what God does in chapter 4. He says back to Jonah, as Jonah is praying to him in anger, the Lord replied, have you any right, Jonah, to be angry? Do you have any right to be angry? But Jonah, he protests, he goes out, he sits down in a place east of this great city, and he makes himself this little shelter, maybe a tent, who knows, and he sat in the shade and, and he wanted to see what would happen to the city. So he's sitting there in his little shade that he makes, his little tent perhaps, and he's waiting. Maybe fire is going to come down from the sky, and maybe the city will get wiped out. Maybe God will change his mind. But there's no way that I agree with God on this one. I want to see what happens to this, uh, to this city. And then God does something. The Lord provided, you see that phrase often in the book of Jonah, a vine. And so presumably, somehow, God makes this vine. Who knows? Perhaps it's overnight. We don't know. He makes it grow over Jonah, and it gives Jonah shade. He's got his nice little tree that God has made for him, and it gives him shade to ease his discomfort. And Jonah, the text says, was very happy about the vine. 
So he's there. He's perched underneath this thing that God has made for him. And it says, oh, he's very happy about the vine. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm. Again, the Lord provided, and here he's got this worm, we don't know what it was, uh, at his disposal, which chewed up the vine, and the vine withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head, and so that he grew faint, and he wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And But God said to Jonah, do you have a right, Jonah, to be angry about the vine? You're angry about a little vine. I made you a vine. I provided this vine for you. You were happy with the vine, but you're so upset, Jonah, because the worm has eaten the vine. And Jonah says back to God, I do. I am angry enough to die. Can you imagine him talking to God that way? I mean, this is, he's talking to God this way. I'm angry enough to die, he says. And the Lord said, and this is the end of the book. We have read the whole book of Jonah in one sitting. I told you it was easy. The Lord said, you have been concerned about the vine. Uh, though you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, i.e., they're spiritually, completely ignorant people. They do not know anything. They follow all these God. They're left, they don't know their left hand from their right hand. They're so spiritually uh, ignorant. You're supposed to be the prophet, Jonah, and these people don't know their left hand from their right hand, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned? And this is how the book ends, with God asking a question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Question mark, book is over. It's a remarkable story of how a man who should have known better is shown by God and told by God over and over and over again, you do not realize the love that I have for people. And Israel does not realize that I am not only interested in saving them, I'm interested in the whole world. And you better take notice and you better learn that I love the whole world, Jonah, and not just Israel and not just you. And this is what he's saying. It is a question for the ages. Should I not be concerned, God says to us, even in the, in the modern age, even to the church around the world, should I not be concerned about this whole world where so many people do not know God? Do we have an attitude toward people who do not know God that's similar to, to, uh, to Jonah and the way that he felt about the Ninevites? It's a piercing, piercing question. The Jewish people read this book in its entirety on the highest day of their calendar year, Yom Kippur, because it's the day where God seals the judgment for them for the upcoming year, whether they'll live or whether they'll die, whether they'll be healthy, whether they'll be sick, whether they'll be rich, whether they'll be poor. He seals it on that day. And the days before the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur is called the Days of Awe, 10 days between the New Year and the and the. Uh, Yom Kippur. And there they, they, I've told you this before, they do lots of good things. 
lots of good works. They repent. They pray. They go to synagogue. I told you, if you work for Jewish people, ask for a raise. Okay? It, September 29th is Yom Kippur this year. Just around September, ask for a raise. Watch what happens. You may get one. Because the idea is, if they, sh- they show God that they're repentant, just as the Ninevites showed God that they were repentant, then God can change his mind. God can relent from the calamity. God can relent from the judgment. He's, a, he's, he's quick to, to love. He's slow to anger. He's a great and compassionate God. So we need to get our act together so that things go well for us in the upcoming year. This is why they read it, because they recognize the heart of God. Here are the lessons for us. Um, you can run from God, and you can have a peace, in quotes. And you can be running from God. And it's true. It is a little bit laughable. You're right. His name is Micah, you know, named after the prophet Micah. You can run from God and you can have peace. Peace isn't always an indicator that you're in the will of God. Be careful of that. You can pray and be unrepentant. Jonah prayed inside the belly of that whale, but there really wasn't a solid taste of repentance in his mouth even though he's inside the belly of a whale being digested slowly but surely. There's no repentance there. You can be obedient to God, but you can be unloving toward people. You can do what God says, but you can have hatred in your heart toward the lost. You can be angry, even angry with God, and be completely unjustified in your anger. You can be that way, we can be that way, and that's a lesson for us. And yet God, in spite of us and in spite of those those transgressions that we live in, God loves all people. God is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love in spite of us, in spite of us of the way we sometimes behave like Jonah. And even when he does this, even when we are running, even when we are disobedient to him, even when we are unrepentant, even when we are angry with God, I love the story because God doesn't give up on Jonah. He could have said, "Eh, this prophet, he's running the other way. I'll just use somebody else. But what does he do? He goes after Jonah. I'm going to provide a storm. I'm going to provide a whale. I'm going to call him again. I'm going to, he's going to do what I say, but he's going to get angry, so I'm going, to, I'm going to provide a vine for him. I'm going to teach him a lesson. I'm going to send a worm. I'm going to ask him a question. I'm going to challenge this prophet over and over again, and God doesn't give up on this prophet. He could easily pick somebody else, but he continues to pursue Jonah. Why? The whole thing is a lesson for the people of Israel and for this prophet. Wow, in the Old Testament. I mean, we sometimes say, oh, God is such a mean God in the Old Testament. He's so cruel in the Old Testament. He's so loving in the New Testament in Jesus. Read the book of Jonah. My friends, God is a great and compassionate and loving God. He will not let you go. You can run from him. You can be unrepentant. You can be disobedient. You can be angry. Can I tell you, God can handle all of that stuff. And he will still pursue you relentlessly until he gets your attention and he gets you to surrender to him. Jesus would refer to this story. Jesus believed 
that Jonah was in the heart of this whale for three days and three nights because Jesus refers to it in uh, the Gospels. And if you look at Matthew, uh, for example, Matthew chapter 12, uh, and maybe you'll see this in a different way today, Jesus mentions the story in a confrontation with the Pharisees. And they say to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And this is what he says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Remember, he's in a confrontation with the Pharisees. That's the context. But none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man, referring to himself, Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and they will condemn this generation for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. What's he saying? He's saying, you Pharisees, you're the same. You're the same as that prophet Jonah. Your hearts are hard and you'll get no sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. I will be in the heart of the earth referring to his burial for three days and three nights just like Jonah was. But you will see even the Ninevites are more repentant than you. And he's speaking again to the ultra-religious elite of the day. Wow, what a warning he gives. But it's clear, Jesus even believed that Jonah was in that fish for three days and three nights. This is no allegory to Jesus. This is a true story. But it illustrates the profound love of God that he has for each one of us. I'd like the band if they would come up and we're going to, uh, at this time, remind ourselves of that love of God through uh, communion. I don't have my emblems with me. If one of you guys can give me a set uh, of communion. Oh, thank you, Shirley. Uh, and we're going to remind ourselves of the love of God in this, in this uh, context of this story uh, by taking communion together. And this is a powerful, powerful uh, um, illustration of remembrance for us. And perhaps you'll see it in a little bit of a different way today. Uh, Paul talked to the, the church in Corinth about this idea of communion. And the basic thing is we remember. And the story of, of the Gospels, the story of Jesus coming and dying on a cross for us and being raised from the dead... Um, this is a, a remembrance, this, this idea of communion, of God's great love for us. The scripture says, while we were still sinners, while we were running from God, while we were disobedient, while we were unrepentant, while we were unrighteous, while we were angry, Christ had already died for us. Now, very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, Paul says. Perhaps for a righteous man, someone may die. But for the ungodly, who will die for them? Who will die for the unrepentant, the angry, the disobedient, those who run from God? I'll tell you who Jesus did. And all of us are in that state at one point or another. And we remind ourselves, uh, don't we, uh, of what Jesus did for us by taking these emblems. And that's why we do it regularly because we've got to remind ourselves, hey, press the reset button in your life once in a while. Jesus came, Jesus died, and Jesus 
rose again and he is coming back. And that, my friends, is what holds our lives uh, together. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, the famous passage that we often read at communion. Uh, Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Uh, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's just a little wafer, and in this, in, in this particular set here, you just peel back the top layer. It's really thin. You've got just a little little wafer here, and this is just a symbol. It's just a picture, just a representation of the body of Jesus that hung on that cross for us as an atonement for our sin. Are you grateful for what Christ has done for us today? Would you take the emblem with me? And he continues to the, to the Corinthians in the same way after supper, uh, he took the cup and he said something very, very profound. Uh, just in, in a few words. This cup is the new covenant, the new arrangement between God and his people. And it's, it's an arrangement in my blood. Uh, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Uh, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You've got to remember what I have done for you over and over again for whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes you remind yourself Jesus came Jesus died Jesus rose again and Jesus is coming back it's going to be okay we press the reset button of life and of our souls together would you take the juice with me Praise the Lord. Please stand. I'm going to pray and then let the band uh, play that great song, Your Name. And I'd, lo I'd love it if you just entered in just for a moment uh, to use that term, you know, to enter into worship for just a moment. Maybe you're not comfortable singing out loud. Maybe you're not comfortable raising your hands. But whatever you are comfortable doing, why don't you take a couple of moments and sing that. Father, we thank you for this powerful story that we read uh, from this man's life. God, we thank you that you are a God who relentlessly pursues us. You are a God that loves even the people without mercy in this world. God, you are, you are one that loves the unrepentant. You are one that loves the sinner. You are one that loves the, the neighbor that we have who we just, we just can't get along with them. God, you are, the, you are the one who loves all people. I pray you would teach us, God, to be a little bit more like you, that you would teach us that compassion, that you would teach us that grace. God, we thank you for the precious gift of salvation. May we be those who would want to give it away, those who would want to explain it to our friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers, fellow students, God, whoever you would put in our path. I pray for the ones who are running today. I pray for the ones who are disobedient today, the ones who are unrepentant today. Perhaps there are those, God, even in this room, and they just find themselves in that, in that cycle 
like Jonah. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us. And we thank you for your love that calls us. And we worship you and we praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Sing that song one time. with.